Welcome to Before Showtime with Connor and Marcelo. A very this is special Mar episode. Very special. This is Marcelo speaking. And this is Connor speaking, or as he likes to call me, Con God. I'm very flattered by it myself. And we have a very special guest tonight. I am John Vangeli, a friend of Connor's from New Jersey. Joyzy. And, and uh, what, what major are you in currently right now? I am a psychology major, but I, I do love film and it's something that's always been, I've been passionate about, you know, I, I love watching movies and I enjoy it. Yeah, so today we have John as a special guest for our discussion on everything, everywhere, all at once, which is the best picture of 2022 for the 95th Academy Awards or Oscars 95 or whatever they want to call it. This, this show is losing its identity. <laughs> and today we're just going to give an overall just heavy deep dive into that film because there's a lot to unpack there. Right, Connor? Certainly. We just watched it in a classroom where we screened his... His 4K. My it was the Blu-ray. Yeah, we screened the Blu-ray. There wasn't a 4K player or TV in that classroom, but it it played fine anyways and it looked mm -hmm. fine and it was your second time seeing it yeah this is my second time yeah first time since the theater first time since theater. um this was my third time seeing it first time was in the theater with john and my friend chris who couldn't be here tonight as a matter of fact my second time was seeing it at home i rented it to show my family and the third time was this blu-ray release this, I think, might be the film I've seen the most times from this year. This is one of the few ones I've actually gotten the chance to rewatch. And it's definitely worth rewatching, too. Yeah, it honestly got, it got if, if I'm being honest, I think it got even better on each viewing. John, how many, how many times have you seen this film so far? I actually have just seen it once in the theater, but I kind of, before I came in the podcast, I kind of reassessed my thoughts on it and, you know, wrote some stuff down that's awesome yeah just to give a warning to our audience as well this is going to be a spoiler heavy episode on the film so if you have not seen the movie first of all what are you doing with your life <laughs> do go not, see it do not continue it won best picture get on it we're going to spoil many scenes and just go very very deep into specifics in terms of the dialogue and the story so that's just the warning we'll give right now John, I want to start with this. What do you think from the whole film is the thing you took away from the most? Was it the acting? Was it the storyline? Was it just the creativity put into the movie? What did you take away from the rest? Um, I, I'm a, I love to write. Um, I'm a big writer. And I think that the writing in the film was really brilliant because it was able to everybody that viewed that film had a different experience and got something different out of it and it's it's so packed with so much different stuff and i really i, I appreciated that a lot like i i think it it created like an experience in the theater and i the writing was very uh strong and a big presence in it for me i also the cinematography was just like like completely captivating like every there wasn't a single shot that they did not the daniels didn't didn't you know, go hard with. Yeah, I, exactly. This was surprisingly shot on digital, which I couldn't really tell while watching the film because it's so well lit and it doesn't look overly polished. Although this is the kind of film that I think you were telling me about this could have only been shot digitally because of just 
the insane amount of editing and visuals they do with it. Some of those transitions in the film that cut to basically the camera flying into the air and landing into another car, you cannot pull off with a film no. camera. It's just not possible with the equipment. But at the same time, like you said, they put a, a kind of a filter almost to the movie to make it look filmic because clearly they lit the film to make it seem uh, more like they shot it yeah, on Yeah, there's 35. a lot more depth in the images than with most films I've seen that are shot digitally that tend to look a little too sleek, a little too Netflixy. Do we? I think we have to just say this too. This is a film where career timings just all happened at the same time, and maybe is part of the reason why this specific movie resonated with people so hard. Because I I can imagine like people that don't typically go to movies and see Michelle Yeoh can still get a kick out of it because it's very accessible. But then you also have people that watch movies like us, like pretty, you know, incessantly, right? And are trying to study how, how you know, you can do it at a high level. And I have to say, it, I think it appeals, it appeals well, just as well to mainstream audiences as it does to, to the film snobs like us. Cause I think that's part of what's so special about it too, because like it has such a wide appeal. And it, like in an age where the line between like, you know, stuff for film snobs and stuff for general audience is becoming like, you know, even more thinner. and more fun, yeah. Do you think that this movie even works without short round returning as, you know, one of the- Mom, he just the, won an Oscar. One of the most memorable side, side supporting actor characters I've seen in a minute with, um, what was the character's name? Wayman Wang. Wayman Wang. And then, and then Michelle, Michelle Yeoh, too. I don't know if the movie works if you cast that with some other actress. No, I think she. I think the part was actually written for her, and it was, as far as I can tell, one of the few times in a Western-made film where a film actually took advantage more of her acting ability than with her martial arts abilities, which are basically what all of these clueless American journalists would ask her about when she was in Crouching Tiger and Tomorrow Never Dies and starting to cross over here in the States because I, I guess on one hand, you audiences weren't quite familiar with her here in the States, but on the other hand, it after a while, it does start to become her being kind of pushed into a box and pushed into stereotypes. The only other roles that were kind of similar to this that I've seen her do where she does a lot of heavy lifting other than Crouching Tiger were probably um, Memoirs of Geisha and um, Crazy Rich Asians, which even then were kind of like Western made, kind of made to appeal to general audiences, whereas this is just something else entirely. Yeah, for those that don't know, they actually originally named the main character instead of Evelyn, Michelle Yang because they were trying to pitch Michelle Yeoh the part, and she actually took the part, but said you have to switch the name of the character because I don't like to bring my own personal yes, self into the roles, which I thought was a pretty fascinating fun fact. Yes, and this is the kind of, again, with her being put into a box throughout a lot of her career as this like martial arts star, I, I've always really liked her in supporting parts in US films I've seen her in, and, I knew from the very beginning that she had an Oscar-winning performance in her, and this became the confirmation of it. 
Yeah, yeah. John, he deserved that Oscar. Have you seen other Michelle Yeoh films other um, than this? I've seen Crouching Tiger many years ago, uh, but this was like my first exposure to her like acting, I think, that I could you know recall and see. Um, but I was blown away by all of the cast, to be honest. And everybody comes through as kind of like an underdog in their own way. And like, like it's a success story for the whole cast, pretty much. Like it's- Kiwi Kwan even lost his insurance during the pandemic when the film stopped shooting. And he was able to bounce back from that with the amount of acclaim that he was able to get from this part. And he, he, he won an Academy Award. Dude, he retired from acting. And he couldn't get a job for a while. And this was his first part back in a minute because his wife was like, you should go back into acting if that's what you want to do with your life. And my God, one of the greatest comeback roles probably in film history if we're going to really look back at it. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think his story is so... Like, it's captured everyone. Like, that's what... He was the like star of the Oscars, like yeah. it's awesome. He was the one hugging Harrison Ford. And are we gonna just not point out because I'm gonna at least point it out that he is the emotional core of everything. Without a doubt. Because the Evelyn character is super stoic typically in her characterization because that's just she's kinda done with life, right? Yeah, and she's a I'm glad I respect the uh, Daniels for writing her like this. He is a deeply flawed character. And I just hope that more people don't end up labeling her as unlikable because of some of the things that she does and says, especially about Joy and and her partner and the people around her, and still not being quite adjusted to her generation and not quite having a grip on like her. Yeah, because. That character, She's a complex the, character, the Evelyn now. character is from a traditional Chinese background where obviously they're not as accepting of people liking the same sex as a partner, right? Let's yeah. just be real here. Chinese, like in terms of the culture, it's not super accepting of values. So that's the thing she's fighting in the movie that Joy is like, really like, that's the main conflict they have. And I enjoyed it because we don't get to see that a lot in movies. Yeah, and Joy in particular, we see some of the influences on of Western culture and the internet, especially on her and her life, and how that's been kind of a blessing but also a curse to her, given that she turns into Joe Tamaki. Yeah, John, what did you think of the Joy character? Did you interpret her as kind of a Gen Z amalgamation of somebody that is overwhelmed by so much content that exists i i think that she was she was one of the most important parts of the movie and like you could make an argument that any of these characters were the center of the movie but like i her to see her get that like relief at the end and the way that um evelyn was portrayed evelyn is such like a, a realistic character because she does have those like homophobic ideals, you know, from the beginning, but you could tell that she's struggling with them. And her and relationship with, Yeah, and her relationship with Joy is is very complex and and realistic. And I think Joy is an amalgamation of so much stuff that Gen Z has to deal with, with like dealing with, you know, their parents' trauma and things that their parents have been through and like and how trying to break trauma. generational trauma. Yeah. And, and the, the fact, fact that there, there is just, just so much content on the internet and so much to have to worry about now, given the influx of information and 
that is very much personified in the variety of these just absurd multiverses that we get to see. There's one with hot dog fingers, there's an anime one, there's there's pinatas and even a like a cartoon drawing and they sometimes go like one after the other and it is that goes into how overwhelming of a movie this is to the senses. It almost feels like when you watch when I when we watch that movie, it almost feels like we are scrolling through all these different like videos and pictures and and content. And in that respect, this is one of the first real Gen Z films that really spoke to this generation and was and dissected the internet and its culture in this way. And I think it would have been so easy for it to come across as like tacky, but they did it in such a tasteful way where it's not like people who are older are are not going to enjoy it because they feel out of touch with the movie. It delivers it in a way that like, especially just watching it in the theater was crazy with some of these scenes yeah. that just overwhelm your senses. And it's using like the medium of film to, to you know, affect the audience and the way they're feeling directly, which is so cool yes. to me. I and love a movie. And that. my ad, this is one of the more experimental films to get into the mainstream consciousness. I think this is, this and Midnight Cowboy, I think are really the only outright experimental Best Picture winners in terms of their form and how they, how they further the medium and play with the medium and do so many tricks to not just enhance the stylistic elements of the picture but to to really get across the commentary and messages that it's trying to yeah like something i noticed on the second watch was the amount of aspect ratio changes that the filmmakers chose to go through and they're very smooth the transitions because we're going into different universes right so they kind of do make sense and, and also, also the fact that it's at times it switches to film stock. stock. Do you remember that scene yes. where they show them when they're younger and I think they are living in China at the time in that universe. And they're like dressed as with the older fashion and there's even quite a gorgeous soft focus lit section of the film that's pretty much entirely in homage to Wong Kar Wai's films when Joy, not Joy, but Evelyn and Waymond are at the movie premiere and then they meet each other in the the, sm the gorgeous smoky green neon alleyway that is right out of a Wong Kar Wai movie. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed too that they were overt with the film references. I'm like a sucker for that in movies. So when it was doing a 2001 Space Odyssey reference, I, I, I thought it worked in also, the movie. Also, uh, Rakakuni. Rakakuni. Yeah. Let's, let's do a movie where we're clearly commenting about Disney's use of the multiverse, but not shit on Disney the whole time. Yeah. I, I, actually, like, I think the people that made Ratatouille would watch this movie and not be disappointed with how they used the character. Yeah, and not gonna lie, like, the, first of all, this is as, like, charming and as emotional and as much of a roller coaster ride as some of the best Pixar films, might I add. And this film just, it, again, it just, 
I this is one of those films I think I'm at a loss for words at whenever I like have to discuss it because because it is it is really dense. I I was talking to Connor directly after the movie that I was like, yeah, I need to really think about it after the watch because it's not one of those movies you're able to understand it instantly because it's just such an aversion to the senses, including the fact that there's some of these cuts. They're, They're very, very simple, simple cuts, cuts, just like, like jump, jump cuts, cuts or, or just, you know, poof. poof. And, and then, then we, we go, go into, into like a pinata, like, like you were saying. saying. And, and I, I think, think the simplicity of the cutting mixed with the complexity is what this movie really got right about filmmaking in general. Uh, have you ever seen, John, It's Such a Beautiful Day? No, I have not. It's this. It's, a, it's like an animated film, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a great animated film that talks about the existentialism about life. This film, on the rewatch, I noticed it did have a reference to that movie when they became uh, hand-drawn cartoons. Yeah, when when um, Joy and Evelyn are, are about to fight each other and they and they become like, color, like crayon drawings. Yep. It was, it was a pretty interesting way to like, okay, we're going to show film references, here's one, and here's one. Comments, and it has one for everyone. And it comments on yeah. the medium itself because you see um, Evelyn as as Michelle Yeoh essentially as a movie star seeing her own film in the theater and basically the absurd action set pieces that we've seen thus far almost in this universe it's part of that movie and even in the towards the second act of the film that um, I remember seeing this in the theater and you were all just like what at the scene it straight up says like it has a false ending. It's like directed by Daniels, written and directed by Daniels, starring Michelle Yeoh, and then it turns out it's panning from a, towards a movie theater, and then we see the Alphaverse, um, Evelyn running out of the theater, and I remember our friend Chris when we saw it, he was just like, I am so confused. There were a few moments in the theater. Well, what I always remember is after that movie, we just had a, we were speechless. We like walked out of the theater. We couldn't the really discuss We it. couldn't say anything. But then specifically me and Connor were talking about, like we kept saying, how did a movie that had like this, this, and this make us feel this, this, and this? Cause like it goes so absurd with one of the, some of the ideas and on paper, none of it should work. It should be the most like convoluted thing ever. But it, it becomes like a masterpiece because of it. Did the hot dog fingers work for you, John? I yeah yeah. I thought yeah. I thought a lot of the humor landed for me. I was la we were all laughing in the theater. We were having a good time. I don't. I think I, our I, theater was empty, but I think there were some people in the theater though. Not it as many as there should have. It was an it was an AMC, mind you. So um, yeah. these are this is not the culture crowd. At, at E Street, I'm guessing, at your theater, they're probably a bigger turnout because that's more of a niche theater and they were already going to be inherently more attracted to a film like this that kind of pushes boundaries. We released, we re-released the movie after it won the Oscar and it was booming. Business was a booming in landmark E Street cinemas. Yeah, because it's an Oscar winner that, you know, deserved it. What? What? That can happen? I, I think I, I want to talk about... I know you like Banshees better, but... You know not I that. Mean. I want to talk about the Daniels here, because I think it has to be mentioned. These guys came pretty much out of nowhere. They did have a debut feature called Swiss Army Man uh, with Paul Dano actually, and Daniel Radcliffe. Actually, they did make music videos before that. 
They did the video they did for a couple music videos. Did you see this coming after Swiss Army Man, though? I didn't see that Actually, coming. I think Shiner made um, Death of Dick Long in between solo. those two. He did a solo, solo movie. But this was the first, like, Daniels movie since then. I knew, deep down, I knew they had something up their sleeve, considering that Swiss Army Man, I know you didn't like it as much, but I thought it was a very, very strong debut, and it was basically the... Essentially, if the hot dog fingers subplot in Everything Ever All at Once were the feature-length film, and it was also surprisingly kind of touching, similarly to Everything Everywhere, and on the basis of that, I knew they had something even more outrageous and even more incredible up their sleeves. They're definitely one of the most creative auteurs to come out in the last 10 years. I think, I think you, you can, can say, say that, that about, about every 24 director. Honestly, I, I think they're one of the wackier ones, though. I don't know a whole lot. John, have had have you seen their work previously? Like Swiss yeah, Army Man. I, I saw Swiss Army Man, but I had no. I'm gonna be honest. I had no expectations going into everything ever all at once. Like I, I heard that it was it was getting pretty good reviews, but I did not expect what I was. I, I agree with you. I would not expect them to make this after that. Not at all. Yeah, something this ambitious, especially because yeah. I. There was not the marketing of this film I had was quite good. They didn't show many images of the film until like the month before the film's release. They, the first thing we saw was of the googly eyes making the A24 logo, and then only a month later we got the trailer. It really like drummed up intrigue, and then when I found out the moment when I found out this was the highest rated movie on Letterboxd, I shit. Daniel, Daniel Scheinhardt, who's one of the directors, has a scene in the movie where he's literally getting spanked in a, in a gimp suit. Yeah. The boldness of this direction, it has to be commended. It, it, it really does. And by Michelle Yeoh. A well-deserved Best Director Oscar, for sure. Yeah, and Spielberg himself has thanked both of the Daniels and championed them, saying he learns more from younger directors like them than even his peers, his Coppola's and his Lucas's and his Scorsese's. And they also had a great Oscar speech as well. They, um, Shiner thanked his public school teachers even for shaping him for who he is. Yeah, no, it's an incredible feat what they pulled off. John, if you were in a deserted island and you had a choice between Everything, everywhere, all at once, or there will be blood. Which movie would you take on that island? I know it's too difficult for me to decide. That's a hard one. I mean, okay, well, there will be blood is yeah. a hard movie to watch. Like, it's a very like uncomfortable, grueling. It's movie heavy. Through. It's heavy. Everything, everywhere, all at once. You can watch and you can make it be a heavy movie, and you can make it relate to your life a ton, and you know, make it be the super emotional movie. But I also feel like you could. Kind of put it on and just have fun yeah with it. still kind of escapist too and i think this this is one of the best blockbusters i think ever made without a doubt is it a blockbuster i don't know like an unexpected blockbuster because it was made on a smaller budget it was an a24 film i don't think a studio would have had the balls to touch this movie for those that partly because you know this does the multiverse Better than Marvel ever could. For those that don't know, this movie was made for about this 15 is, million, yeah. and 
7.5 million was spent on marketing. So really the movie was made for 7.5 million. And it made at the box office 100 million. A24's highest grossing movie and surpassed Uncut Gems. This the is something that know. disappoints me though is that, that film, a film like that still isn't going to make as much money as Fast X or something. That's okay though. It, it, it still proves that these independent films can still make money. Even then, That's what I, I like to see. The thing that worried me about the industry, especially still now, is that theaters. Back then, Pulp Fiction, I think, made as much money as any, as like Forrest Gump and, and, and yeah, um, it, it made like two sixty-five. Yeah, that would that would not happen now, without a doubt. And I think there's a focus not... on like the escapism of it now, and people yeah. are like really because people are really caught up in like escaping into movies, and like a lot of people are. They just want to see like their Marvel movies and stuff, and you know, have fun in the theater. But they're letting says, go theme park movies. Yeah, they're letting go of yeah. like the art of film. I feel like. So the reason I asked that question is, I'm a kind of guy that I would bring There Will Be Blood on this island, but that's not to say that everything everywhere is not, you know, a more modern cinematic movie. If that makes sense, yes. it is more of the time. It definitely is. Uh, this a fingerprint of the cultural point of the internet, like we've been discussing. This, I feel like, is is a cultural milestone of a film, and I think that's why part of the reason why I also loved it so much, and part of the more I thought about, the more I appreciate it, was that it was really one of the first Gen Z films. Do you think? That really do you think that component scared people though? Because I heard a lot of stars like Tom Cruise. Uh, a couple others didn't even go to the Oscars this year. I wonder if they're scared. Well, Tom Cruise was because of Scientology. I don't think so. I think they're actually scared of the direction that uh, the industry is going in. Because you have to argue, like, this movie is very, very experimental. It's out there. Yeah, like, I don't think, uh, I don't know if, would Kubrick like this movie? I'm not sure. I don't know. He, he could? It's hard to it's hard it's hard to tell. Even though there's a love letter to Kubrick in the movie, I even think he would he would probably say it's a little incohesive. Because you have to tell me the cohesion of some of those plots, and for me on a watch, it did get a little bit incohesive at times. I I was fine with it. You're fine with it jerking like back and forth different timelines. Because at least I felt like I was watching the whole the the same movie, and plus that's what the film is going for. Mm. I think it's a movie that's kind of supposed to confuse you. Like a lot, that's a big criticism that I feel, a criticism that I feel like I've heard a lot of people say of the movie, like it's hard to follow and like it didn't make sense. But I think like the core of the movie is very easy to understand and it's made like that on purpose. Yeah, like the, the family, family drama. Family. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I'd agree. That's the thing that keeps it together from just being like, whoa, this is complete chaos, right? Because yeah. at points, like, like, there are dildos that are being used as weapons. And, and hot dog fingers. And at one point, in order to activate superpowers, you need to do something weird. So people are jumping off to, like, cover their butts with the plug, right? Like, yeah. It is wacky. You can't tell me, like, it's not... It's pretty fucking time. goofy. And there, there's a pinky kung fu. Yeah. It was hilarious though, but I don't know if that would completely work if they either didn't completely lean into it or if they didn't balance that with just 
an incredibly heartfelt story, and I think that the yeah, whole, that's are we gonna the mention, like, my work. You got really, really hit by one of the scenes during the watch. I, and, and I, I think, think this, this has happened, happened this happened all three watches and it's the same two scenes and if you've seen the film you know what I'm talking about and it's two moments the finale where um, Evelyn and Joy reconcile and earlier on during the montage uh, where the now somewhat iconic montage of of um, Wayman saying in another life, I would just be doing laundry and taxes with you. And there was the montage of his life and him laughing with the googly eyes. And and then, and I think both of them were not necessarily like sad tears coming out, but more so like I, first of all, I just connected so much with this story and particularly with Joy's story because I, whether we all like it or not, we have a bit of her in us as our generation. We we all I I hope we all try not to be Jobu Tupaki and Yeah. Don't let the internet kill your minds, right? Yeah. Because it really can. It is a place with just and limitless amounts of everything. Knowledge, violence, hate, love. It is yeah, it is a crazy, crazy and the the laundry taxes scene, first of all already again already an iconic moment in the film and it was it was his oscar clip and everything and it was the one that was a moment where his arc was really starting to to come into shape and again him arguably being him and joy both arguably being the hearts and souls of the picture yeah that, that's where the movie, at least for me, that's that's the part I love most. That's I think that's when, the part that's that, grounded where I'm like, okay, this movie works. Like two thirds of the way through the film, that's when the film went from merely being good to being a ten out of ten in my eyes. I completely agree. I think like the ending, all the family stuff is what makes it so special. What what has made everybody able to enjoy it and relate and see something in it, and it is like a love letter to Gen Z and everything wrong with Gen Z, but also like praising a lot of the culture and, you know, a lot of the problems that people are dealing with. Yeah, I think as Connor has mentioned this in an earlier episode about sometimes filmmakers like to shit on the Gen Z generation for some reason. This This movie does not do it at all. In fact, like you said, it kind of cherishes the quirks that we have in, yeah. in that we do have access to things that our parents don't, and that can make us chaotic, but it can also make us, you know, have a little bit more knowledge. And, and like accept it, and more acceptance of others in this case, because a lot of the story hinges on um, Joy not being 100% accepted by her family as being in a queer relationship. And we see some of some of um, Evelyn's somewhat somewhat still old-fashioned attitudes about about queer people and about Jewish people, and even later on in one of the more in, in the scene that leads to the big tear-jerking moment in the film is when she ends up outing Joy, which first of all not cool, and second of all that really like helps create the flaws with this character that help us 
in a way identify with her and in a way also empathize even more with joy and want, kind of want them to reconcile because we know them as like flesh and blood humans rather than rather than just lame action heroes yeah like we're we're i'm gonna mention that evelyn does change by the end of the film but still even through the whole journey still at the end says hey grow your hair out to the joy's girlfriend which means like oh she's still evelyn right she's still like going to call out certain differences that she just does not agree with because she's a human being but at the same time she learned like to accept her daughter for being gay and to be open about it even with her parent that is obviously not going to like it and they're now accepting her as having both, both as having like both joy and evelyn have both kind of unlearned a lot of behaviors over the course of the story with with evelyn as we've mentioned trying to like kind of understand her daughter and try to unlearn some of those some of that internalized bigotry that she still has given her generation and that she was in a place where a lot of bigotry was acceptable and and joy we can we want to see her unlearn the nihilism and depression that she's starting to suffer through and how she doesn't feel like there's much worth in life at all nothing matters to her and that's what conquers her joku tupaki is mental illness the everything everywhere bagel is not just nihilism, but also extreme depression of just finding no meaning in anything you do because guess what? You are a part of a billion suns that exist in this universe. So your importance is, in like the end of the day, kind of cosmically not that important if you really start thinking about it. But that doesn't mean you can't find joys in the little things, this is, which is kind of what the movie's guess, saying. And guess what? She's also called Joy. Yeah. Nope. I think this was one of the first things I saw her in besides Shang-Chi, but this was the first, like, real this is big a role she role. got. This is a meaty role. I don't think this is even a hot take. Even though I think Jamie Lee Curtis's performance in this film is getting unfairly hated on because she ended up winning the Oscar over Stephanie Hsu, Stephanie Hsu, I still have to say... She, she was, she fucking phenomenal, was phenomenal in this movie. I don't know if it's a hot take to even say she may have deserved it slightly more than Jamie Lee Curtis, just based on the performance alone. I think folk Twitter would agree with you. But you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna roast Jamie Lee Curtis getting an Oscar. I think that's that's pretty cool. I live in a world where Jamie Lee Curtis has an Oscar. I guess so. I think she should have won for a fish called Wanda, and also. Um, I sympathize with Angela Bassett. I was there more of a narrative award there given? Definitely. Yeah, it was an overdue one. John, do you think Stephanie Hsu was a more powerful performance? Oh, certainly. I definitely think that her performance was more powerful, but I kind of agree with you, Marcel. Like, it is nice to see Jamie, like, Jamie Lee Curtis is Jamie Lee Curtis. Like, it's good to see her Yeah, like, I don't, win an I, Oscar. I don't, like, I don't have any hard feelings against her personally for she wasn't having even bad in the movie. If she, are, she was she funny in the film. She was no, good. yeah. I know the part is not like, you know, as nuanced per as, se as Joy, as Joy or even slash Joe or, or even or even Queen the Queen in Black Panther. Yeah. Even, no, I understand. Angela Bassett when she, she watched when she watched Jamie Lee Curtis's Oscar clip of her eating hot dog finger, she was a little bit disappointed. 
she was she was rightly so because women of color still have been even with even with Michelle Yeoh's win, which thank fucking Christ that happened. Women of color are still like not being credited and canonized enough for their work in these films. And I think this year's Oscars though it was a it was a turning point for that. It certainly was. I just hope it's a movement and not a moment. Yeah, I, I hope so too because I think it's the right direction. Yes, and part of why this film I think is gonna first of all stay culturally relevant and still be and is still held near and dear to people is because first of all like first of all winning seeing an asian woman winning an oscar and like imagine young like i imagine like girls who look like her watching that and just being just being so empowered by the fact that someone who looks like them can win an academy award it's, it's an amazing achievement for anybody to win an oscar but you kind of have to give it a little bit more of a pat on the back for people of color because yes. guess what it's not really built uh the system for them to succeed but that is changing i must say because look at these past couple best picture winners we got everything everywhere which is clearly an asian community like w right and the and then, thing, and then the, the year prior, we have Coda. Nomadland, right? Which is no, it was Coda. It was Coda. Okay, that, so with the, also the deaf community. The deaf community. And right? then, and then Nomadland, a film directed by a Chinese woman. About about the outskirts, like people living the outskirts the of America. Yeah. yeah. And it, it Each, is. It's all and marginal. Paras marginal communities are getting and parasite. My yeah. man. first non-English language film to win an Oscar. What the hell was that all about? Can we have all movies like Gone with the Wind, right? Okay. John, do you, do you, do you agree that there's like a clear schism in like the fact that obviously the Academy is awarding these movies that are showing marginal or, you know. People, like oppressed communities. Yeah, yeah. And people, and people who aren't as privileged as, as us. I think I'm always going to be kind of like cynical towards the Academy because they've done so much bad shit yeah. and I, I'm That's not going to give them credit enough to say that I think like they're doing this because they genuinely believe it's the right thing. But I think we will see a shift because people are changing and the population is, and this is what they respond to. Like people are sick and tired of seeing movies that don't deserve to win yeah. or, movie, or movies that are, you know, just white dominated winning every single year. Like people want to see these, you know, movies from different cultures and people want to explore the world through film and i think that's definitely a shift that we're seeing after parasite like and and now with this too like, those are the two oscar yeah. wins that that i think i feel like changed the world of yeah. film and this being this motion picture having been an independent pro I guess, I guess you, you could, could argue, is it an independent film? Because A24 is... Dude, 15 mil is independent, dude. A24 does have two Best Picture wins under their belt, so I guess you could call to them a To put that into perspective, Quantum Mania was a $160 million budget. This movie's 15. And guess what movie's gonna age better? <laughs> yeah, well, that's not a question, right? Yeah, and this film, having been successful and having won Academy Awards, this, I think, and I said this during my Oscars episode, this gave me hope 
as an aspiring filmmaker. Like, whatever crazy idea I have, as long as it has heart like this, could be on its way to a success story like this. And cinema... I feel like cinema changed... Well, cinema changed when A24 came on the map, and then we got The Witch, and and before that The Babadook, and art house horror films, and great independently made films like Lady Bird, 20th Century Women, and later on we international films got recognized like Parasite. We, I think, I hope this isn't the, I hope it's not nearing its end. Since around 2013, 14, we have been in some new, new Hollywood, some second wave of independent art house cinema that I feel like is making films so much better. I think, I think, I think you're correct that it's changing, it's but Hollywood. it's definitely for the better, dude. Like, you can't tell me some of these, like, for the movie we watched today, some of these editing choices, they're a little bit out there, but my god, they work. They definitely work. Yeah. John, John, I know you have to go kind of soon because you're on a time crunch. Yeah. But um, do you want to do the top five A24 personal picks? I, I would love to. This let's was do a, it. Right. Let's transition into that. So for this part of the episode, we are going to do our top five personal A24 picks because obviously Everything Everywhere All at Once was released by A24, which is a great studio. The studio that changed the world of the film. Yeah, and the way we're going to set it up is we're each going to go five, 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 four, 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 and then go around and... That's, we'll talk about it, see see what we like, see what we disagree on. Should I go first, Connor, with my number five personal pick? Uh, yeah, you go first. All right. For my number five personal pick, I have Eighth Grade, directed by Bo Burnham. This film, for those that don't know, is centered around a girl who's obviously in the eighth grade, played by Isla Fisher. And she Elsie Fisher. Elsie Fisher. Elsie Fisher. Right. I keep mixing the names. She's fantastic. In one of her my first uh, exposures to her on, on screen. I think my first exposure to her. She was a voice in Despicable Me and a couple of animated films before that. But this was the first time I'd seen her in a live action feature. Yeah, and it's basically the movie is just her growing up in eighth grade and liking boys. And going into trouble about popularity and, it's, and feeling accepted. But what I love about this film, and this comes from it being Bo Burnham's debut feature. First of all, I really hope he gets to make another narrative feature. I'm surprised he hasn't. But I think it's because of Inside. Yeah. What a piece of art that movie. Or is that even a movie? Like a comedy special? Like that. That is a great comedy special. Yeah. I, I think I think what eighth grade does really well though, and why it reached in the top five for me is, it's such a it's such a down to earth indie film that doesn't try to. It's unpretentious. Yeah, it doesn't try to squeeze drama in places they don't need it. They they are always focused on just telling the story about this girl, and they don't throw her into these weird situations where she's like experiencing. Like, like euphoria level dramatic beats like no. it was just super no. dumb and, and plus the reason why i feel like this film in particular connected with people especially myself is that this kayla is kind of a socially awkward kid and she has trouble getting along with people even has even has some hints at mental health issues and is isn't 
she is not, not the generic, privileged, like, teen movie, like, 90210, John Hughes style, like, leading lady. She, she is a nuanced character. We identify with her every moment, and it, it's not afraid to get uncomfortable in how it depicts this. Not at all. And, and it, like, like, can we, we mention, mention the fact she actually looks like she's in eighth grade? Sometimes yeah, she's like they and they shoot these movies, and you're like, they look too old. <laughs> it's a not just that, but like the whole like a big thing about like you know middle school, high school, whatever movies in general. It's like I, I love stuff about high school or middle school that's like looks like it's like these kids feel like they're in high school and yeah. eighth grade or middle school in eighth grade. Like this feels like experiences that I had when I was in middle school. Like it's it's relatable but also like it doesn't give up her story and it doesn't become too like general it's trying it's, it's not, not trying too hard to be relatable, relatable either and yeah. it's just it's just such a true to life story that i i can always relate to no matter the situation and that's my top that's my number five film Whoa. as well coincidence jinx con god all right what's yours Okay, um, mine is Come On, Come On. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is my favorite actor of all time. Um, and that movie just connected with me in so many levels. It, it, I, I spoke about this with everything everywhere all at once. Like, it was such an experience to watch that in the theater. And, you know, I've watched it once since then, I think. And it's just like, I love writing in movies. And the writing in that was just superb. Like, it's and, a really wonderful film. Yeah, Mike, and, Mike Mills is an excellent screenwriter. I think that's actually his stronger suit than his directing, and he's a phenomenal director. He gets powerhouse performances every yeah. time. He's and he even, he even got an Oscar for um, Christopher Plummer for Beginners, which is an earlier film of his. And might I add, uh, I watched I watched this with my mom in theaters, and this was about I think my third time after seeing the joker because i don't go like too often with my mom to the movies so this like was weirdly like i was like oh look at joaquin again coming back but this was such an interesting follow-up to the joker role because it's so uh subdued and it really relies on the connection between him and the little boy in the movie who is played excellently yeah, i was gonna yeah. say the little boy is oh my god like that performance i i really think the little boy not being as good as he was could have destroyed the whole movie, but like no. because he was so good and because his relationship with Joaquin Phoenix, who like like you said, had just come off of Joker, which is like crazy. That's yeah. like that was his Oscar role without a doubt, where he's transforming, he's in makeup, he lost weight, he's playing a comic book villain, but he's also what is you know, this show though? What is this show though? Extreme range. range. Extreme yeah. range. Dude's a chameleon and good at his job. Yeah, and I might even say I liked him better in this than in Joker. Wow. Oh, I did too. I, 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 I think, think his performance in Joker. I think his performance in Joker is really is good, but it's it's show. It's, it's it's somebody it's somebody losing their mind. We've seen yeah. it before, and it's yeah. super show. It's, it's, it's Travis Bickle mixed with the Joker comic book. Yeah, it's a given the Oscar role. Yeah. Without a doubt. Not it's that Joaquin Phoenix doesn't play it well because he's yeah. very talented. Yeah, I loved him in Joker, honestly. I thought that was great. He was um, very good. And might I add, um, I cannot wait for Boa's Afraid. Yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix, it doesn't have to be said, but one of the greatest working actors right now. Absolutely. My number four pick, which is kind of interesting since you just mentioned a Mike Mills film, is 20th Century mm. Women, which is Mike Mills' film before he released Come On, Come On. I still need to see that. This is an excellent ensemble piece starring Greta Gerwig, 
and Matt Benning. Gotta go rank one of my heroes. Uh, you know, uh, one of the Fanning sister. I think it's Elle Fanning. Elle Fanning. And might I add Billy Kudrup as like this, the like kind of the one to like, guy character that's pretty down to earth, and it's not one of those guy characters where he's super evil and stuff. He's just a. It felt superhuman the movie because it is based on Mike Mills' upbringing. Yeah being raised by women in Santa Barbara at the time. Yeah, so it's, it's such a personal piece. I remember seeing ads for that when it first came out. I remember, like, the way it was advertised, it was, like, kind of depicted as a stereotypical, like, prestige picture. But I, I still... The experience really I got it. watching it was almost watching a poem, but read out loud by a child, but then uh, an adult reminiscing on that poem. It was, it was kind of that experience because of the film doing a narration component where yeah. what the the guy who's being raised by all these women is narrating yeah. about his did, mom did, about Greta Gerwig's character. Curious question. Um, do you think it did the voiceover well? Incredibly well. Yeah, because yeah. um, it, it, it did voiceover to the point. How dare you use any voiceover? It did voiceover to the point where I was like, this movie probably doesn't work without the voiceover yeah. component. Yeah. yeah, and I'm I tend to be the kind of person who sometimes gets a little critical of voiceover. I'm almost I not to the point of this, but I almost get like the Brian Cox character in adaptation where he's like, how dare you use any voiceover in my script? Yeah, and I I don't need to mention this, but this film, it looks really good. Yeah, I, I saw a Cinefix list that actually named one scene it one of the best camera movements in cinema. Because Mills's style is very subtle, but the compositions on these shots, when you watch a 20th Century Woman, Connor, you are going to have a field day. Yeah. What's your number four pick? What's your... Uh, actually... Okay. You want to, John, do you have your number four ready? Do you want yeah, to do yours? My number four is up Florida Project because sure. it's a solid. That's a really solid. I I just I love 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 what Sean Baker did with something that's frankly pretty ugly. Like the Florida Strip, mm -hmm. like in Orlando, is an ugly thing. Yeah. And like he took it and he made it into something so magnificent, and he took this little story that kind of you know, feels like an ant in our big world and made it feel like it was everything because it is everything to these kids. And it brought me back to that feeling of being a kid while also telling a story that like I was interested and compelled in. I love that movie so much and Willem Dafoe in it, so good. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I, I remember, I remember enjoy, I, I remember not enjoying the film a lot yeah. when I first saw it, but I, I, it warmed on me the more I thought about it, the more I, Again, Again, with, with the, the level, level of realism, realism and the incredible, incredible performances, performances, another great, great child performance from uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Prince. Prince. Um, I thought, shout, also shout out to Sean Baker. I, I don't want to be a broken record here. I don't need to say Defoe. That's one of my favorite performances because of the subtlety. I think yeah. the the thing that I will say that wasn't mentioned yet is the saturation looks fucking crisp in that movie. It's a beautiful looking film. Because it, it, it fits the theme of the movie because it takes place literally miles from Disney World. Yeah. So you're watching this like kind of lower income uh, group of people in Florida, but literally miles away is the happiest place on earth. It's yeah. a very and, interesting And with one of the worst movie moms of all time. Yeah. And, they, and yeah. They, they take that idea like in the end too and kind of like literally yeah. like run with it. Yeah. Like, they definitely run with it. And it was shot digitally. Yuck. Sean Baker's words, not mine. <laughs> What's, What's your number four? My number four is 
probably the greatest American horror film of the 21st century, and that is Hereditary. So good. I respect that choice, dude. What? Why? Why Hereditary? Hereditary because. And this is coming from someone who respects horror as a genre and is fascinated by it, but we'll admit there are very few good horror films out there. And this, and, and I'm, when I started getting into horror films, I got less scared by them and was more into the escapism of them and realized like, you know, this is actually kind of, a lot of these are kind of dumb, I can just go with it. And I could just watch turn the brain off, watch the scares, hunt people get down. the heartbeat a little pumping. But then I watch something like Hereditary, and my mind is blown because I that's one of the few times I've watched a horror film that I was genuinely terrified during. It's one of the most disturbing horror movies that I've ever seen. Same. And the, this, it's up there with, with certainly with The Shining and The Babadook and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One of my favorite directorial debuts I've ever seen. How the fuck is this a debut feature? How? Look at it. Tony Collette should have maybe won an Oscar. No nomination, too. I know. Don't you. Ridiculous. Don't shout at me. Don't swear at me, you little shit. I'm your mother. It reinvented horror like at a time when it definitely needed it the most. Like I'm, I'm kind of on the little bit of the other end of the spectrum with Khan. Like I've been a lifelong horror fan. Horror was my gateway into like film as a whole. So like that movie was especially special to me because I got scared. Like I, I yeah. watched a movie that like I felt like wasn't active, was actively trying to like scare me in new and inventive ways and. That hasn't been done in a long, long time. Yeah, and the, the fact, fact that that, that film does, does it so well without relying on jump scares and just relying on pure tension and through the psychological aspect of it, that is really not... These, the great thing that A24 and the quote-unquote, God help me, I hate this term, elevated horror cycle in this new Hollywood movement really did was they basically made well-made artful horror films mainstream again and this had been done before this is the babadook probably arguably started it the witch helped popularize it and get out took it into the mainstream arguably but hereditary was like something else entirely some of the images of this film i will never be able to get out of my head no, and it's because it is a to make this movie. He's one of those he's one of those guys that I'm like if I ever met him in public it'd be like I'd be like a little concerned about Hi. Like, how did you come up Yeah, with I'd be like are you good, bro? Like you're in the booth and that's what you came up with? Like respect, but also I'm concerned. I, I love could see like films. skills of some of these scenes yeah. and just like immediately like feel the fear that yeah. I felt when I was first. Hi. I love your films. You scared me a little. Because it's clear that he's he's riffing off of old horror movies, he's, right? You he's can't tell me. Exorcist, yeah. certainly, yeah. and and but he even influenced. He even cited family dramas like Ordinary People and Kramer vs. Kramer. I can see that as influences, which adds to the fact that going with this and the Babadook in particular, these are both family dramas disguised as horror pictures. This was the one too. Scorsese watched and was like, keep an eye on on this guy. Yeah, and Scorsese, he, he knew. My, my number, number three, three, my number three pick is Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems! Josh and Benny Safdie's uh, film starring Adam Sandler as Howard Ratner 
as a Howard Ragnar. As a jewel, he he works in the Diamond District as a jeweler. Holy shit! I'm fucking gonna he, come. To put it in short, has the most insane gambling addiction probably yeah. caught in the last ten years on screen. Are you fucking Adam I love this movie because I'm a sucker for movies that feel real and raw and gritty. And guess what? This film does that, plus it is trippy at the same time. Yeah, and it, it goes is, into the gem. It goes out of the gem. It's like, it goes out of his colon. Yeah. It's, it's a very bold film, and guess what? It's a super personal one from the Safi bros, because their dad worked in the Diamond District, so they know a thing or two. Yeah, and this is another another sadly snubbed Oscar nomination for another A24 It's a panic attack movie. If you don't want to be stressed out during a movie, don't watch it. If you don't like the chaotic New York energy, do not watch that movie. Yeah. But if you do, and you want to see it kind of involved with this guy's downfall and his gambling addiction... Yeah. I don't want to bet on basketball. Hey, That's all I'll say. It's, 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 it's a definitely, definitely an interesting not way to go about spending your money. And it that. is the only... The, as far as I can tell, the only A24 movie so far to end up in the Criterion Collection. Yep. So this this Speaks is another, another film that kind of took really grabbed me by the throat and by surprise because this was this was, I think was the first time I had seen Sandler in dramatic role. This is my favorite Adam Sandler performance of all time. Yeah, this this, this is, is better than Punch Drunk Love, Barry Egan. This, this is I, I like how This and Punch Drunk Love are really. The, the highlights of his work in general. Yeah. John, have you seen Uncut Gems? And if you have, what did you think? Yeah. I, I absolutely love Uncut Gems. I, I, the the Uncut thing Gems. I wanted, I, when I first watched this movie, I actually stood up off my couch halfway through and was standing up for half of the movie. Like I literally <laughs> watched it so standing up yeah. because I was so like, there was so much energy just exuding from the screen. And you could definitely, I didn't even think that they had had a father that worked in the Diamond District, but you could definitely see that because you could just tell that they've done their research and they know what they're talking about. And that is what's so important to the film because it's so honest about something that's there's a lot of facets to it it's interesting yeah, if you so, read too about the making of it i'll be pretty brief with it but essentially they couldn't get certain stars so they had to write the script in order for it to work with the timeline because they wanted to use real basketball games so one of the only players where it worked was kevin garnett who gives a very good performance as a guy that doesn't act typically so they thought about it just a little bit which i love about yeah I really did like Uncut Gems. I saw it not too long after it came out. I actually it was one of the first movies I watched during lockdown, and that certainly got certainly got my blood pumping. Blood pumping. What's your What's your number three? Oh, we already did your number three. No, John hasn't done his. John, do you want to go number three? Yeah, mine's Hereditary. Oh, Hereditary. Yeah, we've yeah we've. I'm not going to kid you, Hereditary is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, my number three is Lady Bird, a film I actually rewatched earlier in the sem not not this semester, but last semester, last fall. I actually watched this in film school. This film is actually getting studied now, and for damn good reason. This is, first of all, an incredible debut for Gerwig. One of the best directorial debuts I've ever seen. And a film that really particularly affected me when I first saw it because it really 
just hit hard with me and my relationships with family and it hit harder on second viewing now that I'm actually in college and have not been in the same situation as Christine, as Lady Bird, but have been definitely felt that. Yeah, no, Lady Bird is a fantastic debut feature by Greta Gerwig, who is predominantly an actress, might I add. And it got that emotional core between the mother and the daughter so yeah. authentically that and plus, you can't like, knock the movie. And plus, plus neither of them are really, even though like you do feel a little bit of contempt for the mother, she's not a super villain. She's not Mommy Dearest. And plus, the, the way they write Lady Bird is so brilliant because she's a complex character. And this has pissed me off numerous times when I talk to people about this film. So many people accuse Lady Bird of being an unlikable character. That really pisses me off. I mean, First she of all, technically has unlikable traits, but yeah, that doesn't mean she's bad, though. Like, yeah, bad she's, a, she's a teenage girl, yeah. guys. She has, like, emotional problems. Yeah, if, if, and plus it's kind of a sexist criticism to make because if if it's a guy doing this, you would be flawed and then you would still, like, get that Sigma yeah, male Travis and his lord yeah, Travis if you're Especially if you're an outright unlikable character, but if, if a woman's flawed, oh boy. Yeah. John, have you seen Little Women? Uh, Lady Bird. Lady Bird. Lady Bird. Um, I, I absolutely love Lady Bird. Yeah. Uh, I think, like... Actually, I, I watched it a few years ago, and I actually didn't like it that much. It completely went over my head, all a lot of the themes and stuff in it and the importance of it. But then I watched it a few years later, and it hit a lot harder, especially being around the time where I had to consider, you know, college stuff. And it definitely, like, the relationship between the mom and the daughter is done so well, and all of these characters are written so real that they, they feel like people that you could know. It feels like... It almost at some points it kind of feels like you like somebody like snuck a camera into this family's house and you're just caught in the middle of all of this going yeah. on. And the dynamic is so real. It's, it's like, like hard, hard to, to tell it's acting, acting at times. That's something yeah. that both Gerwig and Baumbach do incredibly well. Yeah. I think and that independent film like resume that Gerwig had really upped the authenticity of the performances yes, and, and the writing. It's writing. one of the best teen films I've ever seen yeah. in terms of just the authenticity of its depictions and the way that story is told and just again it it just captures something so specific and it's not so again it's not to euphoria levels of melodrama and it's it's completely an unpretentious depiction of, of these themes and it's just such a wonderful film for that john since i mentioned this movie are you more of a Lady Bird fan or a Little Women fan? If you had to pick one of them, because Little Women is also Ooh, another great film too. Another Greta Gerwig directed picture. I'm gonna go hot take, dude. I love Little Women. I'm picking Little Women out of the two, and I think it's because I think it does the period piece element so well, plus the fact that it's a story everyone kind of knows. It's yeah. been done multiple times, and she brought something new to it. Yeah. What were you saying? Um, that is a hard pick because they're they're very different, but also. Certainly. I think I, I I like I'm a big I'm a sucker for stuff that like I can incorporate into my life because I love to watch a movie and get like something that I could really put into my life and I think I got that more with Lady Bird with like it just it has that relatability of like the high school environment and stuff and. You know the 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 mother relationship and stuff is something that hit home definitely for me and 
No, that makes sense. It's a fantastic film. And and the fact that we, my God, the fact that I am, this is one of the first films I've gotten to see in film school thus far is a sign that that is going to last forever. It's timeless. 100%. Is it time for my number two? This is probably not surprising, but I put Moonlight as my number two. Barry Jenkins directed- That's my number two as well. It's mine too. Okay, we're all number two on Moonlight. What? This is what I'll come out, because there's a lot of things we can talk about, but this is my big point. Barry Jenkins directed the living shit out of this movie. I think this is something that only he could have done and pulled off because it has that complexity of the gay protagonist going through you know obviously an identity crisis through the stages of his life and just incredible it, what i love about this film is that it doesn't it is willing to show the just incredible amount of trauma that he goes through chiron but it's also not exploited it he he got a writer from yale uh university that was a very good playwright to, write, to help him write the story because the guy is gay. So, you know, the authenticity there is to the, to the max. Like it's, 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 it's almost impossible to tell me what that movie is doing is not at the highest tier of filmmaking. And even more so, I think, than, than Labor in eighth grade. This is a film where I forgot I was watching a movie a lot of the time. It just felt so real and so real because Half the people who made this probably went through these events in their lives, especially especially the writer of the film who who was himself gay, yeah, and definitely. probably lived under similar conditions. And this film is just another film that this film I, this is another one of those films I watched during lockdown to catch up with. I that film basically left me broken and beaten and shattered. Yeah, because for those that don't know too, Barry Jenkins had a was raised by a mother who was a drug addict. So that component of the story, that that part of the story is semi autobiographical. So it's a tough it's a tough watch. What do you think, John? What do you do you like about Moonlight? Um, this movie took me way too long to get to. Connor would actually text me like every night, like watch yeah, get Moonlight, on Moonlight, watch Moonlight, get on probably, Moonlight. Probably because it was like so. Probably because it was one of those movies I watched during lockdown that I was. I basically harassed a bunch of people to try to get them to watch Moonlight. Yeah, and, and I'm happy that he did because it, it is one of the most like haunting depiction of all of these problems that, and it goes into it in such a, well, excuse me, sorry. Um, and it goes into it in such like a, it's not afraid to show some of the ugly parts of this that make the viewer uncomfortable because you should feel uncomfortable because these are issues that people are facing and uh the ending of the movie like that whole movie it just haunts me and to this day like finale, i still think about it all of the time and and, and the fact that that film is also just a, a, a feast for the eyes and ears despite yeah. the uncomfortable nicholas Bertel's score is fantastic mahershala ali supporting actor one and Naomi Harris, who also has one of the most haunting off-screen deaths I've seen in the film. It, it hits on all cylinders in film. And, and yeah. this picture is just beautiful looking, yeah. with the color scheme and the purples and blues, and 
it's such a romantic film as well, especially that first encounter between Kevin and Chiron as teenagers, and that final shot of Chiron, young Chiron at the beach, an homage to 400 Blows, is is another image that will like stick with me for years. Yeah, best picture winner. Yeah. Best picture winner that deserved it. I, I know you're partial to La La Land. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a La La Land. I'm also a La La Land. Yeah, let's go. John's a La La Land. I don't like it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what's, your, what's your number two, Connor? Um, my number two was also Moonlight. Oh, so, oh, so we all did that number one. That was my number one. Let's just, okay, I'll just go to my number one. What's your number one? What's your number one, John? Okay. Yeah, let's do John's number one. My number one is Everything Everywhere All at Once. My number one is also Everything Everywhere All at Once. Whoa, mine's Hereditary. So, we already discussed Hereditary. We kind of already discussed Everything Everywhere, but here's the podium. John, why is this the number one A24 movie of all time so far? I think I've seen, I've seen quite a few of the A24 movies, and I think a lot of them are great films, but this one in particular, like this whole, the whole, this whole conversation has shown it's changing film. And I think that down the lines, down the line, we're going to see its influence on like film and as a whole and like film as a medium to tell stories that are complex and aren't, you know, are challenging and are challenging this like older generation of filmmaking. And it's, it's bringing in like a younger, more relatability to what is like considered like, you know, to be higher film, like, you know, <clears throat> it, it, it goes to a lot of places that filmmakers are afraid to go. And it takes a lot of risks that pay off. And I, like, I've seen it once and it, I think about it all the time. I could close my eyes and picture that movie. It's such a cultural phenomenon right now. And hopefully it will stay that way. And I think I it'll age, it'll age well. Yeah, I think this film, I think more than, I would argue more than any movie that came out last year, I think will end up being a Desert Island choice and will end up being in the motion picture canon. I know this is going to end up in the National Film Registry on Sight and Sound's Top 250 poll. I know that this film is going to last forever, not just because it is a, such a timely film and such an important motion picture, but also because it gave millions of people hope and both filmmakers and just regular people as a whole. And just the fact that it showed just in the form of this bonkers multiverse story, it also has so much heart and just is, I, I'm, I'm sound like a broken record. Here, no, but, but it's, it's the most creative of all the A24s. There, yeah. You can't and tell me otherwise. And that's a high bar too. Because like, A24 so is all about letting the director and the artist just go with their vision. Yeah. Which I, that's yeah. what I love about them because they don't have, you know, these studio uh, mandates in, in terms of the pictures. Even, even though sometimes they do get a Scott Rudin. Yeah, but, you know, they sometimes they don't know what people's personal lives are. That's proof, right? Yeah. You don't know what goes down. The Safi brothers are even in hot water for something that I won't discuss right now. No, yeah, they, they had some interesting tactics when they went independent film. Because independent film, too, is such like a boots-on-the-ground experience that I think it is quite tough to follow all the rules, I must say. Yeah, and independent films in general are by design going to be riskier and more challenging to yeah, produce and distribute than a studio film like 
Again, yeah, even everything everywhere all at once isn't even going to make as much money as the worst Marvel movie. Yeah. yeah. And that's, um, first of all, that's a fucking shame. And, and two, it just goes to show, like, how... I wouldn't say, like, how far cinema has fallen, but, like, how much it's changed with the advent of streaming and with the advent of the pandemic. And... A24, I think, is, dare I say it, they are starting to save American cinema. They might be the top uh, Hollywood studio working right now in terms of the quality of the pictures they release. Except for Neon, probably. I don't think Neon Pictures top, like, just the amount. They did get Parasite. I think it's a close second, but, like, they did get Parasite. A24 is just, like, it's it's... It's changing the game. Like, it's, yeah. it couldn't have come at a more perfect time. And it, I definitely think, like, at a time where young people are pr pretty disconnected from these types of films, to be honest, it's especially with everything everyone wants, it's working back a relationship between young people and film. And I definitely think it inspired yes. a new generation and, of filmmakers. And young, and and young, young people, people, like people, people at my school, school like, like, like us, are they, they talk just, just as much about Marvel films as they do about the, the next A24 film. film. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. I don't, I don't awesome. know a single person that hasn't seen everything in a row at once. Like, it's yeah, everybody at my writing class for screenwriting raised their hand when they were asked if they had seen it, at least most of them. And again, that goes to show what a cultural touchstone that film was. And why they also add that A24 is one of the few studios nowadays that really has a brand distinctly. It almost goes back to the old Hollywood studios, like Universal had their horror pictures, Warner's had gangster films, MGM had their glamorous studio epics and musicals, um, and and of course later on you got Marvel with superheroes and Pixar with animation and and uh, unfortunately Miramax with prestige films. But now we've got A24, and they're their own thing. They have merchandise. They, they have, have their, their own brand. brand. They basically, they're kind of a meme at this, this point, point too. Because if you see that intro of the, the logo I and you know it's something. You're, yeah, you're, you're like, you're really, really I might be getting a quality film for the next two hours because it's curated. They actually have like a pretty good curation process. I haven't seen a dog shit A24 movie in a, ever, ever. Not really, no. I've never seen a dog shit one, so that's yeah, pretty good. There are probably very few that even exist. They would be yeah, I'm kind of surprised you didn't put After Sun in your top five. After Sun might have close. Um, kind of close. I thought that was going to hit it, dude. It's, it's certainly an honorable mention, which I'm going to run down a few that we haven't... That yeah, we what's, really what's like something that maybe got we, close for you? We, I, I love The Lighthouse. Oh, sorry. Robert Eggers. Lobster. Lighthouse goes um, Under the Skin was brilliant. I haven't seen um, it, but I've heard great things. It's a brilliant film. Really? Um, Minari. I really love oh, solid, sorry. very solid. Um, a relatively new one that not as many people have seen. Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Which I think movie. is a very underrated one. That was just barely made my list. That was that's a really good movie. Ooh, um, almost got there for you. The Witch, yeah. which was a really really close one because of what it did for the horror genre and just the fact that it's just again just a creepy movie, plain and simple. 
I like Come On, Come On. The first reform I thought was excellent. Paul Schrader. Have you seen that, John? That is like um, high. Uh, Ethan Hawke's one of my favorite. That is high. Dude, up you gotta put that list. on the watch it's list. It's a very good film. He's um, excellent in it. After Sun got close. Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems got close. Um, the Yorgos Lanthimos films that were done by 24, The Lobster and Killing of Sacred Deer. So good. Hear me out. He's the next Stanley Kubrick. Wow. He is our you Stanley Kubrick. You might not Kubrick. be wrong, dude. Yeah, it, the filmography is kind of, it's kind of shaping out that way. Not gonna lie. Yeah. Um, uh, The Green Knight was, is an, another really good one. Ex Machina, Midsummer. Close, um, a film I saw pretty, pretty recently. Close. That was really John, have you seen Close? No, I haven't. Um, if if yeah. not, um, listen to listen to. Uh, by the way, y'all, listen to our episode about Close. Yeah, listen to it on Spotify. In-depth, spoiler-free thoughts. Yeah, it is a great Belgian movie. Yeah, and it's about um, these two boys that are kind of very close friends, but one of them is going through like a mental crisis. And it affects their relationship. And it is fairly similar in tone to... And, yeah, they're like seventh graders. They're very young, these boys. So don't expect like them to go like too intimate with the storyline. Yeah. It's more like, oh, okay, they're just very close friends. Yeah. Another one I really loved was Pearl, which another fairly recent one. And another one... Off, John. Dude. No, oh, please, I'm a star! She is awesome. She's a star! She's so good. And one that, one last honorable mention, um, one that you, John, actually turned me on to, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So really excellent. I watched that one still. That was, from what I understand, Majors is, I, I know, again, he's also someone who's on the hot seat right now. He's on the hot seat. But might I say that he was, this might be the best work he's ever done. Wow. He was fantastic in that film. And, and, and also, also shout, shout out, out to, to Joe Talbot, Talbot who's on Letterboxd. Uh, follow him. And the it really, I really respect how both him and um, Jimmy Fails, who plays quite literally plays himself in the film, were able to tell this partially autobiographical story. And another one that really, really moved me, and one that I that. I thought it was gonna go one way and then went another. Yeah, no. I'm just I'm really glad A twenty four exists, dude. I think they have a very awesome sentiment these when it comes guys, to filmmaking. These guys these guys. Look at all these movies they that they know what they're they doing. They actually do though. They, they know what they're doing. And guess what? They're not the biggest budgeted studio out there, no, they're, and they're still killing it. They have so many obstacles, and they're still finding a way. Yeah, and as That's a matter of fact, their most expensive film is going to be their next film, Bo is Afraid, at $60 million. And I don't think they peaked yet. I don't think we've seen the peak of A24. I think they're no. still going up, and we're still seeing them get better and better and better and break more and more boundaries. I, yeah, I think they, they, see that. they may be the greatest film studio. Modern film studio, studio right now, A24 is the top dog. Yeah. No question in my mind. No yeah. question, dude. The most nominated studio last year. And I know yeah. it was because of everything everyone but they also, they also let's did, admit. They, I, think I think they also did have The Whale and a couple other films. Dude, Paul Mescal got an Oscar Star. nomination. Who, congratulations on your win for Streetcar Named Desire. That's so, that's, that means the studio is getting more eyes than ever, is what I'm 
Because yeah. yeah, Paul Mescal getting an Oscar nomination shows and me that A24 is having some dominance. They have a box office hit and a cultural phenomenon to their name. And yeah. even if they made just this, I'd be proud of them. Yeah. And the marketing for Bo's Afraid is, is so good. I think a lot of people are going to see it too. Yeah, I, I hope so. I'm yeah. concerned because will, of the will it be this year's like everything everywhere? Like weirdly, I don't know because another weird. It's so bold. Yeah. It looks so it's basically bold. it's hit. It's Ari Aster, Aster doing, doing a, not necessarily a horror film, but a horrific black comedy that's, uh, he calls it like a zonky nightmare comedy, and this got me even more intrigued to watch it, um, a Jewish Lord of the Rings, and, and it's gonna be a decade-spanning, very trippy, as far as I can tell, kind of a non-linear narrative, and it's gonna be super heady, and it's gonna be just a lot of just a lot of fun to watch. That's just, gonna be a dense one. Just, where, like, I'm gonna walk out and be like, I need to think about it. Yeah, that definitely is gonna need explained videos. It's three hours as well. Whoa, whoa, wow, wow. And it's going for it. This Ari Aster with the heard, budget. I think heard some people say that it's it may be his best movie. Even. Wow. I'm so excited. I, I'm definitely I'm excited. looking forward to that, along with Barbie and Oppenheimer and Past Lives. This Those is gonna are be, this is gonna be a great year for film. And I mean, I, I mean, the film, do do part two? Do yeah. we mention that? The film girls are gonna be happy that Nolan and Bill Louv have the same movie. Hey, calling it down to Dune Part 2 might win the Oscar for Best Picture. I don't know, because I don't know if The Lord of the Rings is going to happen again, but I can see that topping the first. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to that one. I can see the first, too. And the first is My personal number one most anticipated film is actually another A24 film, and that is Past Lives, which was the biggest hit out of Sundance this year. Speaking of A24, another one's coming out, guys. Supposedly another one that is just heart-wrenching to sit through, but it's also a sort of slice of life story. It's an immigrant story. Debut feature. It's a debut feature for, um, I think, um, Celine Song. Celine Song. And it's been getting, it's been getting 10 out of 10s. It's gonna end up in people's top fives, and it's coming out this May, so... We are, we definitely owe ourselves to check that one out and support it and support the great work that A24 has been doing because they are doing God's work in terms of just kind of, in some ways, getting American cinema back on its feet and really still allowing people to realize like U.S. cinema is, it's not just Marvel movies, it's not just superhero films, it's not just the in terms of the quality stuff, it's not just the stereotypically Oscar-based stuff that the Weinsteins would have produced. God help us. Yeah, no, it's it's They've an awesome over. it's an awesome studio, and it's going to continue to be awesome. It's very clear. I hope uh, the money doesn't affect their decision making. Which, because guess what, these movies are going to keep getting more and more people. Yeah, uh, that's my prediction, at least. I want to thank John for coming on the show today. You were an awesome thank guest. Thank you guys. Yeah, so you have a great cinematic mind, dude. Keep like that, keep oh, up that, like I the watching because yeah, you really like know your stuff. Thank you. It was lovely to be on. It's first time ever on a podcast, so oh, it was yeah. fun. It, it, was, it was it was awesome to have you. And if we ever have another opportunity, I'm definitely gonna hit you up, dude. Because I'm I'm so down. Always, always. I, I can always talk about movies. Awesome. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode on Everything Everywhere in A24. I just want to thank you for reaching it this far. I know it's not the easiest task, 
And yeah, just catch us on the next time on Before Showtime with Connor and Marcelo.